From LifeStance Health, this is the LifeStance Podcast. In this episode, Dr. Zach Dietrich shares his insights about preventing suicides in the military. We hear all the things about suicide uh, risk factors, you know, giving away things or, you know, the, the mood or the what people see or iso, you know what, perceived burdensome and perceived isolation are the two biggest risk factors, not just the isolation, but the, the burdensome. I'm in my home. I'm not supporting my family. I'm not supporting myself. Welcome back, everyone. Um, myself, Dwight Thompson, and my co-host, Nikki Lanza, are joined by Dr. Zachary Dietrich to talk about a, a topic that I know is passionate um, to you, Zach, and, and something that um, we're just really excited to get your insight on. Um, and we're going to be talking about um, preventing suicides in the military. Um, and so before we kind of get into it, thanks for joining us, man. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and also tell us a, li- a little bit about your, your connection to, you know, to the, to the military. Sure. So I'm in the St. Matthew office and my primary role is actually in a neuropsychological assessment there. Um, but I also serve on uh, the board of directors for a wilderness therapy program called Warrior Expeditions. And what we do is fully fund and support returning veterans as they uh, hike, bike, or paddle one of the nation's long-distance trails. Um, And myself personally, um, I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2003. Uh, Just for for full disclosure, I was never uh, deployed. I got hurt, actually, in the training. Time was very short, um, but I was still there long enough to kind of feed this interest and a little bit of a taste of what some of the guys go through before their deployment. Um, and it's kind of left an impact on me as far as what I choose to do with my, uh, <laughs> with all my free time um, right. outside of that. Thanks for sharing that. I, uh, you know, even, even it being cut short, your service is always appreciated in any capacity. Um, so, I mean, you know, we really just wanted to, one, you know, we've had you on before and like you said, you, you, you do a lot of work with neurodegenerative disorder, which I'm sure you actually see, um, some sort of crossover between military and that in and of itself. Um, but so with that being said, how does the stress of being in the military, how does that manifest, um, in our military members? Well, like you said, as far as uh, the neuropsych assessment, I actually learned a lot um, in my training through multiple VAs by doing neuropsychological assessment with veterans, because one of the interesting things that you would see is I would do an evaluation on a guy that was my generation. And, you know, when you do these things, you're with them in the same room for sometimes upwards of four hours. And, you know, when you're taking breaks, you're having conversations. And one of the things that stood out that was a pattern that I would see time and time again, you know, um, Operation Iraqi Freedom Veteran. He would get talking and he would say, yeah, you know, I don't do a lot. Um, and he'd get talking about where he goes, what he does. And his world was just for an example, let's say 30 miles from home. That was his, that was his. And see somebody that was part of the early invasion of our Kuwait as it was and they would get talking and you could hear them their world was shrinking you didn't see them venture out as much and then by the time 
I would do an evaluation on a veteran back then. You would see their worlds shrink. You would see their safety zones, their comfort levels deteriorate on the outside world. And I hate to draw this because it's used comedically in so many movies, but the kind of stereotype of the Vietnam veteran that lives in his basement. Um, unfortunately, that stereotype comes from somewhere. And you, you could, I, mean, I could see this across in these multiple generational occurrences where the longer they were from war, if they had not sought treatment, if they had not you know, tried to change this, a lot of times their worlds shrunk. And I'm, not, I'm using a very literal, you know, description here with the miles from home, but you also shrunk from a, a cognitive and emotional level as well. Their amount of friends, the amount of people they trusted, you know, a lot of times if they let it overwhelm them would shrink. And that was when I started noticing that pattern, then I would actually ask mm -hmm. questions, um, you know, during breaks. So right. what do you do for fun? You know, where do you go? What do you do? You know what I'm saying? Yep. Stuff like that. Um, so that was probably the, the biggest lesson that I learned about what happens when these veterans return home from general psych assessments. Mm -hmm. So what I hear you saying, Dr. Dietrich, is that they feel really isolated and disconnected from others. And with that, they would start feeling pretty depressed. And then of course, suicidal ideation might start popping up. Is that a fair way of saying it? Sure. Um, one of the, I had, I had a great supervisor, um, named Scott Carden in one of my rotations and he, that, you know, we, we hear all the things about suicide, uh, risk factors, you know, giving away things or, you know, the, the mood or the, what people see or I, so, you know what, but he said, and he had a, a paper that was replicated that actually perceived burdensome and perceived isolation are the two biggest risk factors not just the isolation but the the burdensome i'm in my home i'm not supporting my family i'm not supporting myself or, or what happened so not just that literal reduction of where they go but also that what you just said nikki that isolation and a perception of burdensome mm -hmm. right so another piece that I understand is that, you know, looking at the statistics since 2021, it, it looks like research has found that at least like 30,000 active duty veterans who served in the military after 9-11 had died by suicide. So, you know, as we continue to explore, you know, suicide rates in the military, what else plays into it? What else are, are for these rates to be increasing so tenfold? comment about your statistics there I, I published a paper in the journal of experiential education i think in 2013 something like that and i've always kind of been a numbers guy i really like taking a deep dive into looking at the numbers the numbers tell a story but the the collection method adds another layer to the story and if you looked at the original paper citing how the data was collected for the 21 or 22 a, a day um you actually see there's a lot of problems with the collection of that data. You get a lot of like rural counties where the coroner is friends with the family and the family doesn't want it listed as suicide because of mm -hmm. preconceived notions or, you know, the stigma around that. And then you also saw large states in that, in that first study, large mm -hmm. states like California, 
Kentucky, states that produce a lot of military members, right. um, were not included um, in the first round. So, you know, that that's not good. That doesn't make that just makes that means that the numbers are actually probably higher. Right. right. Wow. wow. Yeah. And that's that's really staggering too um, to, to think about. And, you know, something that we talk a lot about on this podcast is sort of like access to resources, access to um, things that can prevent, you know, heightened levels of, of mental health, you know, struggles and disorders, et cetera. In the military, it's almost, um, you, you know, and this from my vantage point, so correct me if I'm wrong, there is a sense of isolation just with the military from the rest of sort of, you know, civilization. A lot of, you know, it's almost like your own world, your own, you know, your own challenges that are very unique to the military. What are some of the challenges that come with suicide prevention in the military itself? Just hearing you say that, I, I just I just thought of something. Whenever we ask questions like that, I think we really need to take a step back and out of our industrialized society and look at what has happened across across time you look at Homer's the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, the they're preparing for war. They're training with their brothers. They're traveling with their brothers. The, the struggles, the setbacks, it all occurs with, with their brothers. Right. But then I find it no coincidence that the Odyssey is a book actually just a tad bit longer, I believe than the Iliad and the Odyssey is actually about the return home. Hmm. And as the return home happens, if you remember, Odysseus returned home and he was he was alone. And again, I find that no coincidence. I think that the metaphor got lost in the telling of the story that it is a highly individualized process. I don't see a commonality in the people that I've seen of like, how do we prevent this? The only thing that I see is some people you know, ready for to see somebody like Nikki, you know, in a therapy setting and other people are not ready for that yet. They need a version of their own odyssey. They need something. So whenever you're talking about how do we as clinicians, you know, help try to lower these numbers, the only solid piece of advice I think I could give is learn from the treatment manuals, but put them down while you're talking to this person. Listen to what don't stop trying to figure out how can I stop this before we actually stop and listen at what stage in this person's odyssey, if you will, are they, are they even ready to have the tough conversations to deal with what they've been dealing with or, or do they need certain things along the way and what do they need along the way? I don't think there is a standard one size fits all the military is diverse as any other population. You know, right. there is no, you know, we all have is, but yeah. one, of the, one of the things I learned firsthand, man, even day three of boot camp, when you start talking to guys about where they're from, summer high school dropouts, they had to get a GED to join and, and others were halfway through a master's program and the war broke out and they felt the need to go. Right. So there is, there is no, there is no one side. Yeah. We appreciate you sharing that. And let me let me add this, and I'm sure there's programs that help with the transition back. You know, I, I the the English minor in me got all excited that you're talking about <laughs> the Iliad and the Odyssey. So, like, but, um, and it's a great analogy that journey back, that journey home, that return. Um, 
programs, uh, probably more funding for the programs or whatever that looks like of really helping with that tr transition back and continued supports for them is what I'm guessing would be a huge piece of this as well. Absolutely. And I think more and more they're developing more just specific uh, resources for, for suicide for military right. members as well. Absolutely. You know, so um, Dr. Dietrich, appreciate what you shared up to this point. Um, and one thing, you know, that you, you reference is resources. And although this is obviously a, it's a difficult conversation to have, right? It's, it's a tough topic, it's a, but it's the reality that we face. Um, however, we also want to make sure that we're shedding light on some of the resources that are there as, you know, military personnel are making a transition. Um, and I know with Warrior Expeditions um, you, with, that you do a lot of work with, there is a piece there that really brings a sense of community um, and I think really empowers our military personnel. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, the which goes from Georgia to uh, Nakatoten in Maine, the, the, the path of the Appalachian Trail um, is actually – was actually kind of formed in a way by a guy named Earl Schaefer um, wrote a great book called Walking. He really might get more into his insights of during his journey. But the reason why Earl Schaefer took that walk um, was because from World War II, he said that uh, I'm going to walk off the war. And so there's all, so there, even in our own nation's history, as far as the national park service goes, and as far right. as trails goes, there's a deep seated history of them being used um, as, I don't want to necessarily want to say a coping mechanism, but as a transition piece, mm -hmm. as them taking that time to get away from society, to get away from the noise and not to go back to this, but I find it no coincidence that, these are paddling down the Mississippi River. This is hiking up the Appalachian Trail. You know, this is biking across the nation. These things that these veterans get pulled to do are very similar in nature to what we just talked about with the Odyssey and the Return Home. These are giving them space. And if you look at um, even, I hope I don't misquote this, I believe it was Dwight Eisenhower who actually, one of the things that he uh, did in his presidency was established state uh, travel system, interstate roads across our nation. And one of the reasons why he did that was because it took him, I don't know how many months to get home from world war one. And he thought, you know, that we need to be able to travel faster across this country. Well, sure. as great, as great as that is in this mechanized world, we're able to be in a situation to where we're being, shot at in Ramadi or Fallujah on Thursday. And mm. then that Tuesday we're standing in a Burger King line. Yeah. You know, so it, that time and that space, you know, going back to where expedition, it's kind of the overarching goal. It's not necessarily to quote unquote treat anything. It is to kind of give them that space that they need right. and to draw it back to us as outpatient providers. How can we, replicate that experience to some degree how what can we suggest or what can we do to try to give them that time and space or at least show them why it's important yeah. to have that time and space sure. um 
to find the conclusions to the problems that they're that they're dealing with. It sounds like such an amazing program and it gives them the space to heal, which is so important. Now, I know you covered this briefly before, but can you tell us again what are some of the signs for those who might be contemplating suicide? Again, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but I once I heard this in my internship from a supervisor, uh, Dr. Carden, it stuck with me and I've read more about it. And even in my own practice, you know, I, I see it and I hear it. The, the, the two things that we really should be laser focused in on is that perceived isolation and perceived burdensome. And I would almost, I would almost overemphasize the perceived burdensome component of it. You know, does this person view that they are a contributor to society, to their friend group, to their family, or does this person view themselves as I'm done? I am a drain on society. I, I may even want to live. And that was the weird thing that like took me a minute to really kind of digest. I may want to live, but I am such a burden that it would be better off for my family if I wasn't here. Right. You know, and we hear things all the time about, you know, giving things away or their mood or their presentation. And I got news for you. There are lots of people who have committed suicide. um, And 45 minutes later, we're on the phone with somebody and they were in a quote unquote great mood. You know, I mean, I recently heard a story of the lead singer of Lincoln Park, Chester Bennington. The day before he committed suicide, there was a picture taken of him and his family on this balcony. And they, it looked like this was just like the best family vacation they ever had. But deep down, he did not feel like that he was doing anything with his family that was offering any real support or real value. I mean, yeah. how think of that. That's that's hard to wrap the mind around. Sure. It, it, it's so hard to, to, to wrap the mind around. And so there's got there, you know, we've using the word community a lot um, as a support system around an individual that, you know, is, has been in the military, it, you know, has made a transition. What is kind of your, I know it's a loaded question, but base level, your recommendation for um, providing the right support. Oh, simple. Very simple, boiled down to its simplest core. And that is a text. What's up, man? Yeah. You know, a phone call, a, you know, a, a conversation about what they did or something that is, and I hate to say that because, you know, oftentimes as clinicians and doctors, we like to dive deep into the root of the problem and, you know, you know, gravitate towards that. And sure. sometimes that's not the, uh, sometimes that's not the best approach. Right. Sometimes just a very simple, what's up, man. Right. That's the best about it. And I think we lose that in getting so focused on the symptomology, on the treatment, on the neuroanatomy, on all these, you know, heavy scientific terms that lose the humanity of it. As a clinician, it's very true. We get caught up in all the mechanisms of like CBT and this and that. Right. Really thinking. How are you really doing? And really like the humanity right. of it. It's so crucial. Dr. Dietrich, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on this topic. This is such this is so important topic here. And, and so 
you sharing your story as well and your connection to the military just shows your own passion for this. And so I, I just want to thank you for your own work working with clients. Um, You're very welcome. We appreciate your time. And before we wind down, I also want to make note that this will be Dwight's last episode. And so yeah. it feels like we come full circle because Dr. Dietrich, we've had you on before. And so it seems like a great, great time to have you on as this is also Dwight's last episode. So Dwight, anything yeah. you'd like to share in your time doing our podcast? Uh, I mean, first and foremost, Nikki, I've, I've just really enjoyed doing this, you know, alongside you. Um, and, you know, Dr. Dietrich, you, you're, when we were talking about this, this topic and, um, you know, trying to think of what was important to bring on to this podcast. Yeah. You were the first person that came to mind. I know your passion just as I've gotten to know you throughout the years with, with this. So I really appreciate it. I think the goal with this was to, even if just one person, every episode listens and can take something away from it, then in my, in my opinion, it's a success. So, um, yeah, I just really appreciate you joining, uh, Dr. Dietrich. Honestly, uh, it's kind of nice I'm going to really miss it, um, but it's kind of nice to do uh, my last one uh, with you on. So as a friend, I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks very much. I, I uh, it was an honor to be asked to, uh, to be on this for your, for your last one. And, and, you know, Dwight, uh, I've always kind of thought about you, especially with your work with life stances. Uh, you really highlight what anybody can do to help others, whether you're a clinician or not. You've done so much to benefit so many people without a background in, you know, any of this, really. You come back in for, I can't remember what your undergrad was in, but marketing or something. And you've, you've really um, helped a lot of people, whether you realize it or not. And uh, I hope you take that with you to your next endeavor, brother. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, podcast won't miss a beat. Nikki, I know you'll do, you'll do, you'll do great. Um, just carrying the baton. Thank you, Dwight. Thank you. Dr. Dietrich. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Life Stands podcast. Please be well.